0: Columbia Broadcasting System and its
1: affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theatre and star of these broadcasts, Orson Wells. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space.
0: This is a small excerpt from the 1938 CBS radio broadcast of H.G. Wells' 1898 science fiction work, The War of the Worlds. The story recounts the invasion of Earth by a malignant and nefarious race of extraterrestrial beings from the planet Mars, who begin the process of creating no small amount of chaos for the residents of Princeton, New Jersey and beyond. In 1966, the Star Trek TV series debuted on NBC and only lasted about a year. It brought a creatively imagined universe into the living rooms of innumerable households, with each episode asking us to ponder the wider implications of what human beings encountering alien life would be like. No one had anticipated Star Trek would create such a cult following and several TV and cinematic spin-offs that exist to the present day. In 1977, George Lucas enthralled moviegoers with Star Wars, which was the first installment of what would become one of the most successful series of films in cinematic history. His epic tales took our imaginations to galaxies and their respective cantinas far, far away from our own. In the fall of that same year, Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind debuted, A riveting tale of what it might be like for us here on Earth to encounter seemingly benign alien beings. Five years later, in 1982, Spielberg continued with the theme of the benevolent alien, in his film E.T. the Extraterrestrial, emblazoning the initials E.T. and all the alien's domestic cuteness into our collective imaginations for generations to come. E.T. was the highest grossing film of all time for over a decade. In 1996, the film Independence Day was released, giving us another glimpse of what malevolent aliens might be like. Then in 1997, Carl Sagan's film Contact returned our imaginations back to the idea that if aliens did exist, they would likely have our best interests at heart in helping us negotiate the mysteries of the cosmos. Then in 2005, a cinematic remake of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds debuted, reminding us once more of what sort of terrors might await us if a race of highly evolved extraterrestrials with contempt for humanity showed up.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable, I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black in the like a serpent in the mouth. That's is, is kind of V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips. It seemed to oh, quiver and pulsate, and the monster or whatever it is can hardly move. It seems weighed down by uh, possibly gravity or something. The thing's rising up now, and the cloud falls back. And... I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The
0: bells you hear are
1: ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as
0: Martians approach. But consider our cultural fascination with science fiction, now coupled with the over 4,000 newly discovered extrasolar planets uncovered by astronomers and astrophysicists over the last decade. Surely, we imagine, there must have existed, or presently does exist, life elsewhere in the universe, given what we now know about these planets. As a New York Times article noted in 2016 regarding the abundant discoveries of exoplanets, why wouldn't E.T. have existed at some point? Quote, Given what we now know about the number and orbital positions of the galaxy's planets, the degree of pessimism required to doubt the existence at some point in time of an advanced extraterrestrial civilization borders on the irrational. End quote. So throw into the mix the cultural authority of science and what was once relegated to the realm of science fiction is now seemingly becoming more accepted as mainstream science, particularly evolutionary science. If life has evolved on this planet, why is it unreasonable to assume life has likewise evolved at some point on other planets? Or why couldn't God have created life elsewhere in the universe? These seem like reasonable questions to ask. And if other beings exist, as H.G. Wells suggests in War of the Worlds, have they been keenly observing us, studying us, making contact with us? How much of our ideas about extraterrestrials are based in pure imaginative speculation, and how much of them are predicated upon empirical science? Consider also the many-worlds hypothesis from physicist Hugh Everett's 1957 paper about quantum mechanics. In his most recent book, Something Deeply Hidden, theoretical cosmologist Sean Carroll affirms the implications of Everett's theory, which, in a nutshell, suggests that the universe is a singularly enormous wave function that gives rise to a multitude of our doppelgangers populating other worlds, other universes. But what about God in this theory? If the universe is merely a wave function, where is God? Though not addressing the idea of God directly, Carroll concludes that the many-worlds theory does not allow for any observer outside the universe.: quote, "If the system is the universe as a whole, we are all inside it. There's no external observer to whom we can appeal," End quote." But one would have to be outside the universe to know there is no external observer. Under the guise of science, however, such ideas about many worlds, many universes, other intelligent beings in the universe, become authoritatively established in our collective cultural imagination. And once in place, they become calcified and difficult to challenge, difficult to know when the science ends and the fiction begins. Why does this matter for us today? As the Apostle Paul writes in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Many people will refuse to accept the truth and instead be persuaded by strong delusions. That is no less true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Truth today is no less relevant or important to us as followers of Christ than it was to the church in Thessalonica. And as often is the case today, many scientific theories, even science fiction itself, are used as arguments against the Christian faith. H.G. Wells, for example, made it no secret that he was ultimately opposed to the Christian faith, arguing from an astringent evolutionary materialism. Quote, If all the animals and man had been evolved in this ascendant manner, then there had been no first parents, no Eden, and no fall. And if there had been no fall, then the entire historical fabric of Christianity, the story of the first sin and the reason for the atonement, upon which the current teaching-based Christian emotion and morality collapsed like a house of cards, end quote. <music> Applicable to all of these questions are God's replies to Job and his friends. Recall that it was Satan who came against Job and tried to get him to curse God. In Job's initial lament, he curses the light of the stars and desires that the day of his birth be stricken from the calendar by means of a counter-cosmic incantation against creation itself. God, however, asks Job, quote, "...where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens?" Can you guide the bear and her cubs? Science fiction, science, aliens, UFOs, and the Bible. This episode of Good Heavens is part two with UFOologist Gary Bates, author of Alien Intrusion and the Evolution Connection. On this episode, Gary gives us his further insights into his decades of research into UFOs and aliens, all from the perspective of the authority of God's revealed word. Gary Bates.
1: On the very first UFO conference I took myself to, so you can just imagine this, you know, I'll I'll parody myself, you know, here's the fundamentalist (laughs) born-again Christian (laughs) sitting in a UFO conference with all of these New Age believers and the Raelians, you know, that cult has got their their book tables outside with their representatives. And as we're sitting there, some guy down the front goes into uh, some sort of, you know... uh, yeah, To this day, I don't know whether he was hoaxing it or whether it really happened, but he mm. claimed he started channeling a message from an alien being, and it was freaky. His voice wow. changed. Wow. He started you know, transmitting this message. And I'm sitting here in the middle of this saying, what am I doing? Here? You know? hear <laughs> it. Oh, but wow. I, what, the thing that struck me is people were transfixed on him. They were just absorbed. Because think about it. For these people who... Abandoned traditional religions, shall we say? They're looking at him and saying, "What can they tell us?" You know, this is like getting yeah. a message from the future. Right. Uh, you know, where are we going? What's happening to us? Mm. Etc. And I was just shocked at how people were just lapping it up and couldn't see it for what it was. And that's what really started me on my venture. And it's been a real education because you know, as I say, I deal with a ministry where we're pretty much cut and dried about the science. Um, You know, I'm an Aussie, so I'm a kind of a take no prisoners type of guy. And Mm -hmm. we get robustly challenged all the time. You know, you guys, you don't understand science, you don't believe in evolution. And so, you know, we lend to, uh, to kind of argue robustly back. But when somebody approaches you, on this uh, you know, alien uh, phenomenon, or particularly the abductions phenomenon, I often tell Christians, <laughs> and I say there's three things you need to do if you ever meet somebody. Uh, you need to shut up and listen. You need to shut up and listen. And you need to <laughs> shut up and listen. <laughs> because these people, as you rightly pointed out, Daniel, they've never been able to talk to anybody often. Um, they, they just want to be able to tell somebody what happened to them without them interrupting. And then when you do, uh, a little bit of advice for our listeners. It's not in the experience. The experience can be real. The Bible talks about all sorts of spiritual experiences people can have. But it's in the stories that they're told. You know, I remember once when I was actually back in Roswell, one guy came up to me and he said he's had alien visitations and they told him the alien creators were from the Pleiades. And another guy over here says, well, our alien creators visited me and they told me they're from Zeta Reticuli and, and goes on. Well, they can't all be right. They can't right. all be our alien creators. So which one of you is telling the truth? Mm-hmm. There are only two scenarios, either, either all of you are lying, right? Or your, 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 your visitors are lying or only one of you could be telling the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, not all scenarios are, are, are possible or truthful. And it's when you can unpick, and this is what's amazing. Um, again, I said we have a simplistic view of scripture. You know, the Lord Jesus says something very interesting about this character. He says he is a liar, the father of lies. There is no truth in him. Wow. Because it's they, a good can't reminder. Story, they can't get their stories right. That's and right. when you, the very first time I was on Coast to Coast, uh, Nuri interviewed me for two hours, and then he says, We're going to have an hour of, of, um, questions. And I thought, Oh no, here I am. I'm right in the enemy camp. This is, you know, they deal with Bigfoot and they deal with all sorts of spiritual phenomena. And I thought, I'm just going to get hammered here. And Mm. the very first person Daniel that came on and he said, Mr. Bates, I've been a long time abductee since I was about six years of age. It happens to me at least once a year, Uh, I'm very experienced in this. And I thought, here it comes the bullet between the eyes. Yeah. He said, but you know what? He said, you're right. He said, why, why didn't I realize this? He said, these beings don't love me. He says, if they love me, why would they treat me the way they do? And and you're right. They've lied to me, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's why do people buy into that? That's something obviously we, we know as Stockholm syndrome where seeing where people get kidnapped by terrorists And bizarrely, we see it, you know, even with, you know, say women who are being abused, the only person they can relate to, because they've got to be secretive about it or because of the isolation of the experience, the only person they can relate to and reach out to for empathy, bizarrely, are the ones that are doing the abusing to them. They're and all it does is it drives them in deeper and deeper and deeper. Right. And that's kind of what happened to Whitley Stryber, who you mentioned before. Yep. Yep. They become so given over to it. They kind of can't see the right. you know, Can't see the, the forest for the trees. And when that young man said that to me, I was like, wow. wow. Just pointing out the blindingly obvious. Right. They don't love you. Why do they sodomize you? Why do they conduct gross medical experiments on you? Why do they lie about things that we can demonstrably show?
0: Right. And the opposite extreme, I think, uh, Gary, and you alluded to it earlier is uh, the dismissive mocking of these experiences. Uh, People, you know, tinfoil hatters and crazy conspiracy cultists who are out there in the left field of reality. This is all just their own imagination, too much drinking and marijuana and drugs or whatever. Uh, to 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 be too readily dismissive of this phenomenon is equally pleasing to to the powers that be that 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 we can just dismiss this as a, as a phenomenon of crazy people uh, and as you say it's not that it's something it's a story. And when people have this story, we need to take the time to empathetically listen to them. Um, and I think that's, that's, we have to, and I, I, Wayne and I, my co-host of Good Heavens, we, when we watched your video, we were so impressed with not only the historical information in Alien Intrusion, which is just so well done, so well pieced together, um, just the depth and the complexity, and the length you went to to do the research. It was thoroughly um, well-researched, and that, that impressed both of us. And, um, and it took the phenomenon very seriously. It, it was not extremist uh, on either side, and it dealt directly with dealing with individuals who are in the grips of this phenomenon. Uh, and so I think this is a valuable ministry that, that more people need to know about. I wanted to read a quote that I, I'd love you to comment on. It comes from Carl Sagan's book, Contact, which is probably... Uh, you know, it made it, it, it was a movie first. I had had the pleasure of interviewing Carl Sagan's daughter last year, Sasha Sagan. She came out with a book and we had a conversation. I shared my book with her and she's not a Christian, but we had a delightful conversation and she was telling me about the story of contact. Uh, I didn't know it was written as a, as a film first.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. And then the book came out and then they dedicated the book. So the book is dedicated to Alexandra and that 's sasha that 's uh, Sasha is a wow. a, a Russian yeah. name, a Russian diminutive for for Alexandra, and so she she has the name Sasha, but Alexandra is her name, so the book is dedicated to to to, to Sasha uh, her mom and dad worked on it for like i think she said fourteen years, but it was supposed to be a film first, but it became a book, and of course the film and the book has has had phenomenal success um, but I wanted to read a section to you take a little just a minute here, and I want you to comment on this because I think this is. Uh, when it boils down to it, uh, when you get down to brass tacks, the alien ufology uh, manifesto is inherently, at its core, anti-Christian. And and this comment, I think, is is this is Sagan's writing. It was Sagan and his wife, Andrew, and it was both a, they were they were co-authored. Sasha, I didn't know that either. That so, that Anne and and Carl both wrote Contact. Uh, so the the quote goes like this. It says talking about the alien signal that is being picked up. Okay, so they've received the signal. It's all over the world. Here's the deal. It's being picked up from all over the world. Radio telescopes are humming away in different countries with different histories, different languages, different politics, different religion. Everybody's getting the same kind of data from the same place in the sky at the same frequencies with the same polarization modulation. The Muslims, the Hindus, the Christians, the atheists are all getting the same message. Any skeptic, can hook up a radio telescope, it doesn't have to be very big, and get the identical data. The civilization on Vega, with powers infinitely less than what you would attribute to your god, was able to make things very clear. If your god wanted to talk to us through the unlikely means of of word-of-mouth communication or transmission in ancient writings over thousands of years, he could have done it so that there was no room left for debate about his existence.
1: Yeah. Well, I kind of say, uh, you know, often when people say there's no evidence for God, uh, you can just turn around and say, well, what evidence would you accept?
0: Yeah, or, or I like to say, if there's no evidence for God, then what do you mean by God?
1: Yeah, well, true. <laughs> um, but, I mean, but uh, you know, you, God, God, where are you? Where are you? It's like you're standing up there with a great neon sign saying, I'm here, but I don't want to look in that direction. But now, we, you... talked about, we talked about the DNA molecule. That's right. That's, That's right. why people say it looks like it's been designed. That's right. They don't accept the, the designer. They prefer to say aliens created our DNA and seeded life on earth billions of years ago.
0: That's right. Do you think, uh, what do you think of this, the, the quote there? Do You think that you see the, the juxtaposition that, that an alien signal would be unambiguously understood by everyone. But God somehow is, is a muddle of confusion because he left us with some ancient writings. Uh,
1: well, I, I kind of think, see, we, we mentioned Paul Davis and and both Sagan who claimed to be atheists, but they're not because what are they actually saying in their writings? They've got a a fundamental belief in evolution and that life's evolved elsewhere. And if you looked at contact and the form of the appearance of those aliens was actually spiritual in nature anyway. That's right. Uh, so, that- so, so they are religious themselves, but they have this... Uh, You know, kind of uh, claiming to have a higher, more enlightened view that traditional religion is somehow primitive and so on and so forth. And of course, I think what's ironic when you look at contact and he says, well, you know, why did God or whatever other religions you want to refer to, uh, whatever their God is, why did they make it, uh, why, why did he leave us with such ambiguity? Well, first, I don't think there is any. But secondly, how did his aliens contact us? It was a very, very complex coded message that we actually struggled to understand. You know, I actually wrote about this in my book, Alien Intrusion, because I said, Mm -hmm. you know, when we looked at SETI looking for signals from space, um, they would say, well, you know, we haven't found anything because the universe is such a big place and we just haven't looked far enough. And secondly, if we receive it, we might not be able to understand it. And I said, well, it's a bit like a yuppie in New York trying to communicate with, um, you know, somebody in a third world country banging on a jungle drum. Yeah. We have two different forms of communication. We have two different forms of language. Right. So I think there's a, you know, just to be, be frank, and I'm not trying to be demeaning of them, but I think there's an incredible hypocrisy. People look at writings like that, think that somehow it's more enlightened, but I I think it's it's full of hypocrisy because they're making the very same mistakes and f- fallacies um, that the garden variety atheists kind of do. Because mm-hmm. as I said, just to recap, I've been going on a while, but um, they are religious in nature. They claim that we're going to have messages from highly more evolved beings. They've now reached a spiritual state themselves and then the very messages that they're giving to us are actually ambiguous in their nature because most people fail to understand them. Of course, in contact, we have this very, very one select being who happened to stumble upon the way that it could be understood. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, it's and it's true too, Gary, because who's who's doing the untangling of, of this language? Potentially, it's just a cadre of scientists, right? Um, yeah. The idea that you need to be uh, skilled in radio astronomy, uh, code deciphering. Uh, this is not a, a simple, uh, simple process. So they have their high, high priests, if you will, of, of, uh, receiving and interpreting language and then giving that language to the rest of the population. I and find a that,
1: uh, theme as well with the central character right. in there. That's
0: right. Yeah. Uh, Ellie Arroway, when she does make contact with the vegan system, uh, she discovers that it 's not uh, the overarching uh, alien civilization, but it 's just sort of a grand central station of of alien communique uh, that but it 's interesting I find that she arrives in this vegan world in the fetal position as a child, and she sees the first contact that she has with this alien being is an incarnate form of her late father and That's so the right. greatest the greatest alien hope that that Carl Sagan, a secularist. Uh, now, according to Sasha, her her dad never publicly identified as an atheist, but her but her father's writings certainly attest to the fact that he did not believe uh, in God existed. He was careful to say God doesn't exist, but he certainly, in his writings. Uh, was uh, atheist, agnostic. I would say, at least in his outlook, that he did not acknowledge that the, that the God of the Bible was was in existence. But I found it fascinating to me that that a 14 years of writing a screenplay and then a book, that the the high point, the conclusion of the book, is that well, I'm going to have the main character meet an alien who lives in the heavens, who takes on flesh and looks like a dad. I I, I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it it's like as you say, as we've been saying in these. In these sci-fi movies, there is always a thread of messianic hope Uh, uh, in in the contact in the Carl Sagan's uh, the the Cosmos series coming out now. There is this eschatological hope that our future is in the heavens somehow, whether we contact alien beings or whether we, we leave Earth and go inhabit some other world, that our future, if we want to continue to survive, would be contacting future alien civilizations or finding another home in
1: another world. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, and how is, how is that ultimately, in a sense, atheistic in its belief? Because it, it's atheistic in the assumption that when we get back to answering question one, you know, created or evolved, right? So they believe right. that evolution is out there, but it's not atheistic in terms of looking to the heavens for hope, looking to a more highly evolved, and as we said, when we talk about the, the interdimensional hypothesis, you know, I've watched documentaries on the History Channel where you know, this lady went into this uh, meditative state and the interviewer was saying to this woman who, you know, through the woman, she was actually talking to this alleged alien being, wow. why do you have to use this woman to talk to us? And the <laughs> alien replies, well, you don't understand. We've evolved to such a state we don't even need bodies and vehicles anymore. We can kind of just will ourselves around the universe, et cetera. Uh, so that's what I mean. I mean, yeah. when you when you get to that level and you start dealing in spiritual things, respectfully, you've left your atheist you know, handle on the shelf. Uh, right. you're, you're not really an atheist. You're, you're appealing to unknowns or a belief or a philosophy right. about what happened to try to explain basically everything you see in the world around you. That's that's a religious idea.
0: That's right. In 1980, of course, you know that the original Cosmos series aired in 1980. It was 13 chapters. Uh, Sagan did a book on that as well. There's a chapter uh, from the Cosmos book from 1980 called Encyclopedia Galactica uh, about extraterrestrials. And I want to read this. This is Carl Sagan again. Uh, Exactly what we're talking about. Listen to the assumptions he has here. He says, today... We are again seeking messages from an alien and an ancient and exotic civilization, this time hidden from us, not only in time, but also in space. If we should receive a radio message from an extraterrestrial civilization, how could it possibly be understood? Extraterrestrial intelligence will be elegant, complex, internally consistent, and utterly alien. Extraterrestrials would, of course, wish to make a message sent to us as comprehensive as possible. But how could they? Is there any sense in an interstellar Rosetta Stone? We believe there is. We believe there is a common language that all technical civilizations, no matter how different, must have. The common language is science and mathematics. The laws of nature are the same everywhere. How about that?
1: Well, let me be frank. What a nonsense. Because if they're that highly evolved, why couldn't they communicate with us at our level? Well, and, and, so and, and, They and... complain about God being ambiguous. I mean, why, if, if, if they're millions of light years ahead of us, surely they know how to communicate to us. Why do they have to hide themselves? But see, this is this, is this get out of jail card. It's a bit like Nick Redfern, we said in the movie, uh, he's come to the view that the whole alien phenomena is deceptive because he says, why do they play cat and mouse with us? right you know why why do we see these things on radar screens why don't they just appear openly why do they have to stealthily abduct people in the middle of the night why don't they just come and say listen you know you're mature enough now to realize that evolution has occurred all over the universe uh you've watched enough science fiction shows you know you you should be prepared for this and i think the world would be if such things existed so i think they kind of Write in these terms, and Sagan writes in these terms, because he really is kind of saying, you know, what if, what else Mm -hmm. might be out there? And Mm -hmm. that gives you an excuse to deny what is obvious here on the earth, that there is a creator, that the Bible might be true. It's giving people an, an alternative you know, raison d'etre, if you like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's why I kind of don't like it because people buy into it because they, in many respects, they want to abandon traditional religion. Yeah. As we said earlier, it gets away from the the heart condition. There's no moral accountability to, to aliens, you know?
0: Well, of course, the assumption is, how does Sagan or anyone know, you know, the quote here, the extraterrestrial intelligence will be elegant, complex, internally consistent, how does he know that? I mean, you're making so many assumptions about what kind of alien life you were expecting to find without any warrant uh, or rationale uh, for where you are deriving these assumptions. And again, I think it goes back to exactly what you said earlier, sir, that, uh, that these come from an evolutionary construct, that, that there have been civilizations that have had time to develop uh, much longer than we have, so they must be advanced and eloquent yeah. and capable and technologically superior to us but these are based in uh, darwinian natural selection the idea yeah. that, that that life has had time to evolve in this
1: capacity he, he obviously wasn't a star trek fan because star, <laughs> star trek gets it right because yes. you know with the prime directive there are people there are races that are advanced upon you know advanced in terms of uh, Human beings, and then they actually visit some planets that haven't developed warp drive technology yet. So, (laughs) his assumption is everybody is more more advanced. But you know, uh, it's interesting, you kind of said earlier that uh, we're talking about the Earth being the spiritual center of the universe. Modern science, uh, and particularly uh, cosmogony, which is the correct name, has shown that in fact our Milky Way is probably somewhere near the physical center. Of the universe uh, as well. A um, lot of lot of conjecture about what red shifts mean today because of right. the anomalies, but mm-hmm. um, that's one of the concepts. They do believe that, in fact, that uh, many astronomers believe that our Milky Way might be somewhere near the physical center of the universe. Right. So therefore, was- the further you look out, therefore, the universe must be older. And that's where those more highly involved. Right, right. Might
0: be. Yeah, I was uh, just researching for my next episode on the Big Bang. Uh, Wayne and I are going to be talking about uh, unexplained problems with the Big Bang. And one of them, uh, this is kind of a technical aside, but you probably are aware of it, the idea of uh, quadrupoles and octopoles and uh, the, the way in which the variety of temperature in the cosmic microwave background radiation has seemingly aligned itself. And so you expect when you look at temperature variations uh, in in the distant light that they call the cosmic microwave background radiation you would expect the variations to be uh, randomly disseminated throughout uh, throughout the light data that we get but in fact what they found was that there are sections of the cosmic microwave background radiation that align in such a way to make it look like our solar system or milky way however you down you want to define it, looks like the, the cosmic microwave background radiation from the data that we've gathered from the two satellites makes it look like uh, that our solar system or our Milky Way more and more specifically has made an impression upon this ancient light that, that, that should not be including our galaxy. And so, like you said, it makes it a head scratcher. It makes it seem like Maybe we are finally back to this Copernican idea of being in the center of the universe. You know, it is pretty remarkable. Of course, jury's still out, but the data is out there and it's making a few people scratch their heads. But I think it gets back to bringing up Copernican principle. I think it gets back to this idea that uh, Sagan is the chief uh, advocate of this position, that that, that we've been demoted ever since Copernican. You know this, these yeah. repeated demotions that somehow we're not special. Our sun's not special. The Earth's not special. The Milky Way's not special. Um, but when you talk about specialness and significance in the universe, that's not science. That's finally not a scientific uh, something that you can verify and, and test in a laboratory. Uh, it's philosophical. It's metaphysical. It's theology. Uh, to to say that science has demoted us is is not finally science, but but do you? I'm sure you deal with that at uh, Creation Ministries a lot. You see this 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 theme of insignificance, correct?
1: Yeah. Well, the cosmic background radiation, or the CMB, um, was touted as evidence of the afterglow of the Big Bang. Right. Uh, in fact, it's a problem because this low energy microwave radiation is three degrees Kelvin. I think that's minus 270 degrees but the temperature is even all over the universe pretty much even wherever they look in the universe but there's a problem because you know one of the the questions that comes up about uh, biblical creation is you know how do we see distant stars millions of light years away if you know if, if if the biblical time frame suggests only thousands of years and not billions but the big bangers have the same problem and um this is the transference of information or energy um, which moves at the speed of light. So simplifying, if you know, if you have a hot cup of coffee and a cold cup of coffee and you put them against each other over time, the temperature will even out and it'll Mm -hmm. become constant between the two. Mm -hmm. Well, with the CMB, the big bangers, even in their 14 billion year old scenario, don't have enough time for The temperature to have evened out. That's right, all all over the universe. And uh, I've got some fascinating quotes in my book. I mean, even Edwin Hubble, when he was looking at redshifts, and redshifts are the wavelengths of light that we believe uh, is the represents the expansion of space. And one of the interpretations of those is Doppler. So, right. for example, you know, if she's sitting at home and you heard a motorbike go down the road mm. and it changes frequency, right. based upon the frequency, you could tell whether it's coming towards you or going away from you. Well, they do the same with the frequency of light. And um, so they've always presumed that redshifts equal distance. But there are so many anomalies now. And I've got about four quotes in my book from world leading cosmologists, including Hubble. And Hubble kind of says, look, the prima facie evidence, in other words, the first view evidence suggests that our Milky Way occupies a central position analogous to the ancient conception of a central earth. He said, such a proposition um, cannot be disproven, but it is unwelcome, (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't uh
0: and of course as you know it kind of an aside to this but that anomaly of uniform temperature in the ancient cosmic background radiation was attempted to be explained by uh cosmologist Alan Guth i think it was in the 1980s yeah, yeah who, inflation who had theory. this this mechanism of uh, superinflation like a universe in, in a very 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 short period of time uh Inflated and expanded. Nobody really knows what started the inflation, and nobody really knows what stopped the inflation. Oh, dark but energy, dark matter. Dark, yeah, <laughs> which we can't uh, see. Yeah, singularity, dark energy, dark matter. I just read an article that said uh, we don't know whether or not the Big Bang happened before or after inflation. So there's confusion.
1: Confusion.
0: <laughs> um, but but you know, people trying to to puzzle through this. Uh, it seems like Gary that the the final thing that they're trying to do is describe. Uh, The universe trying to pull itself up from its own bootstraps matter coming from matter coming from matter ad infinitum. Um, And it's sort of bereft of the ancient wisdom of Aristotle that says you can't have a series of infinite regresses, you can't have a series of infinite causes. Uh, At some point, you have to have a primary cause. Uh, and, And so, Big Bang cosmology doesn't even really deal with the very beginning, just much like evolution, right? We don't know what the first life form was. If evolution is true, what's the first life form? If the universe came into to the beginning from nothing, what's the first singularity thing? We don't know. Uh, and I find it fascinating, and Wayne and I have talked about this, that, 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 that when you look at the, the theory of and the and the yeah. cosmogony of our universe, the beginning of our universe, I find a fascinating parallel in that both kind of claim that we began from a very small thing, and blossomed into this huge thing. So you can look at uh, the first cellular DNA, RNA thing, whatever it was. And suddenly that little thing has given us all the biological variety on the planet. And then you look at our cosmos, we are down to a tiny little nugget, something far smaller than the period at the end of a sentence that has all the potentiality for a gigantic universe. And, th- yeah. and then it's a long, slow, gradual process from there that brings it all about. It seems so remarkably similar, but it's, it's finally materialistic and anti Antichrist, if you will, uh, yeah. in its in its origin theories, right?
1: It gets back to the yeah. Its its origins is the key to all of this, uh, as That's we right. we rightly said at the beginning. I mean, most people hear the Big Bang; they think it's science. And when I explain to them, as you've just mentioned, that well, the belief is that the universe came into existence out of nothing. Mm. I mean, and Alan Guth says, you know, basically it expanded faster than the speed of light and stuff came from absolutely nowhere. I mean, that's not a scientific premise. Uh, The universe came out of something no bigger than the head of a pin, a quantum particle that popped into existence for no reason and no cause. Now evolutionists like to criticize the biblical creation model because they say, well, you always have a God of the gaps. You always resort to, well, God must've done it, but they do the same themselves. In fact, you know, the 150-year-old Darwinian theory, we've we've got a a project, uh, it's a book and a movie, called Evolution's Achilles Heels. And we took 15 PhD scientists who were experts in cosmology, genetics, Mm -hmm. you know, biology. Right. And we said, this is what evolution predicts. Do we actually see this happening today? This is real science, testable, observable. So let me just give it a couple of examples. Sure. So the idea that the universe popped into existence into this primeval or primordial kernel, as you said, no bigger mm-hmm. than the end of a dot of, uh, uh, at the end of a sentence. And that, that quantum particle contained all the matter and energy and space of what was to become the entire universe. Well, that breaks a scientific law known as the law of causality. Mm-hmm. Everything which has a beginning must have had a cause. Yes. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, look at anything in your room, in the garden, it had a beginning in time. It came from something. Therefore, it must have had a cause. Right. They're saying this quantum particle popped into existence out of nothing. There was no universe. There was mm. no space. There was no matter. Mm. It just popped into existence out of nothing. Well, that's a religious it idea. Is. It's not science. Or what about the first primordial cell or simple cell? Of course, we know there's no such thing as a simple cell. <laughs> But they say, you know, as I've mentioned earlier, the first chemicals got together to form the first amino acids, the first protein. And they say, well, these were the starting conditions. You know, the famous Miller-Urey experiment where he had, you know, uh, test tubes and reducing pipes. And he said these were the conditions on Earth. He formed both left-handed and right-handed amino acids which are actually poisonous to each other. That's right. So even in a controlled experiment, he could only produce left and right-handed and all life is only based on left-handed amino acids, which is evidence of design. So everything we see in nature, water pushes the molecules apart. It can't happen through chance random process right
0: and with uh with Yuri Miller I like to tell people I said well like let's grant I'll, I'll just go ahead and grant you that just for argument's sake I grant people I said well let's say Yuri Miller was right and they've proven that that out of a out of a certain environment you can get these uh these these things and I says all that shows that even if they were successful in producing a first kind of life in the laboratory all that's going to show is that it took the intelligence of two scientists to come up with this exactly
1: <laughs> this, uh, controlled experiments uh, thousands of man hours of intelligence and that's right say, it doesn't doesn't it help your cause by chance <laughs> it does not help your cause uh, you, know, you let know. Me, can i just read a quote here by a, a cosmologist His absolutely was, please uh, do. george george francis rayner ellis he's a very famous uh, cosmologist yes he's authored papers with hawking and scientific american uh-huh. and, and he said this He said, people need to be aware that there's a range of models that could explain the observations. He says, for instance, I can construct you a spherically symmetrical universe with Earth at its center and you cannot disprove it based upon observations. You can only exclude it on philosophical grounds. He says, Mm -hmm. in my view, there's nothing wrong with that. What Mm -hmm. I want to bring into the open is that we are using philosophical criteria, beliefs, in choosing our models. A lot of cosmology right. tries to hide that. He That's was right. at least honest about that.
0: Absolutely. I am uh, working right now for Watchman on a presentation about uh, what I'm tentatively calling uh, cosmology as bad theology. And uh, I go through and I show where theological assumptions and philosophical assumptions are within cosmological models that and I think for me, what I like to do, and, and it's exactly what you're just saying, I, I love to be able to go in and say, okay, well, a scientist can certainly have philosophical or metaphysical presuppositions, and they can certainly you know, weave philosophy into their cosmology. And that's, it's not necessarily a criticism that they're doing that, but it needs not to be called science. It shouldn't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'm a scientist saying scientific things, and oh, by the way, here's my philosophy, here's my theology, here are my thoughts on God. And people generally tend to think, well, a scientist said it. It's in a science book. I got it out of the science section at Barnes and Noble. Uh, it, this must be science, right? Carl Sagan was a scientist. Uh, Sean Carroll's a scientist. How can you argue with science? And so the it's kind of a subtle argument from authority. I'm a scientist. I have made these conclusions and they are scientific. You are not a scientist. Therefore, you have no grounds of objecting to my metaphysical and philosophical and theological conclusions that I am sort of passing to you as science. And that's where we need to, I think, as Christians understand the difference between what is a scientific claim and what is a philosophical or metaphysical idea.
1: Yeah. um, I I wrote an article some years ago on um, uh, an article in New Scientist by uh, one of their writers, Amanda Gefter, and she was promoting this multiverse idea, which really plays into the hands of uh, explaining away the, you know, the the scientific problems with the big bang but it also plays into the hands of believing that these aliens have developed into a spiritual form and can visit us from multiple dimensions and universe Mm -hmm. and uh, again they sometimes don't realize what they say she said what would you rather believe in god or the multiverse it sounds like an instance of cosmic apples and oranges but increasingly it's we're being told it's a choice we have to make She she quoted Dawkins and uh, Richard Dawkins. And she said, if you discovered a really impressive fine tuning, I think you'd be left with only two explanations, a benevolent designer or a multiverse. But she said, but to choose a benevolent designer would be to abandon science itself. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So it shows you uh, again, also the incredible bias um, that exists and uh, you know she says uh, you know to appeal with to appeal to a multiverse she was actually admitting we don't have any evidence of it but if the big bang doesn't work out it's the only thing we can resort to um and she says well you know ultimately the universe look uh, you know paraphrasing the universe looks like it's designed, but a design is not allowed so there's got to be some other explanation right so let's resort to some other religious ideas That's to explain right. the appearance of design and then so let's use even more religious ideas to support our religious ideas. And then we can claim that uh, it's science because, you know, we're hypothesizing that no designer was necessary. It's That's completely right. circular in its reasoning. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that because they it's this, this kind of canard that they say, well, evolution is science. And to believe in creation as a religion, but you know we discussed That's that right. of course right at the yeah. beginning of the show.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know lest we people think we're we're just kind of talking you know with with a bias here. I think you remember the the headline, the star that made headlines, and I don't mean somebody from Hollywood. I mean a star in the sky. Uh, 2015, 2016, this star called KIC 8462852. Uh, became kind of world famous for a moment. moment It had its 15 minutes of fame. Uh, The the astronomer who was most responsible for discovering and and analyzing it gave a TED talk in February of 2016 titled The Most Mysterious Star in the Universe, and basically what it was. And I think, are you aware of the star? Did you know what the star
1: is? Uh, If you tell me, I might be. I'm not good at remembering the numbers of all the stars stars uh, they find.
0: They (laughs) called it Tabby's Star, named after the astronomer Tabitha um, Boyajian. Uh, who discovered and studied it further. And basically, what this was was a, you know, the Kepler Planet Hunter Space Telescope was looking for planets. And one of the ways in which they would look for planets was to see the, the dimming output of a star. If the star's light mom- momentarily dimmed, then they're looking for what they call a transit, as you know, that a planet might yeah. be going across it and dimming the output of the star's light just ever so little. And so they discovered one of these stars where the light output of the star was dimming, but irregularly. And Uh, They couldn't figure out what in the world would be causing these irregular, enormous dips in the energy light output of this star. And so uh, nobody knew. Um, And then just not maybe a year or two ago, I don't know how long exactly it was. uh, Tabby gave a talk on this in 2016. It captivated people's imagination and attention for a time. But then it really made headlines because there were astronomers and scientists taking seriously the idea that there might be these Death Star-like alien megastructures orbiting this star. And at first it was like, well, ha ha, ha that's kind of serious. Nobody's really nobody's going to be t- alien megastructures. Come on. But then they took the Green Bank radio telescope in West Virginia and aimed it at Tabby's star to see if they could get radio signals and rule out the possibility that mm-hmm. these aren't, in fact, death stars and Dyson spheres. I think that's what they call them. Uh, basically giant alien solar panels that would be absorbing the energy from uh, its parent star. But but for a time, I don't know how seriously it's taken now, people were generally, uh, genuinely, some people were, considering the possibility of alien megastructures as a reason for the dimming uh, of this distant star, that aliens were on the, the, the top five things that might be causing the dips in this star. I thought it was remarkable.
1: Yeah, it is quite incredible. And again, it just shows what... Uh you know, people re- will resort to, to explain unknowns. You know, the universe um, is kind of a weird place. When we talked about redshifts, for example, and we say redshifts of equal, equal distance, um, you might re- be familiar with an astronomer by the name of Halton Arp. Uh, yes, who's, who's yep. and his, uh, his
0: bizarre galaxies. I have, the, I have the, his catalogue. It's wonderful.
1: You know, so what we see is, for example, you know, we see a galaxy, call it A, to simplify it, Mm-hmm. And we take the redshift from that and we say, well, look, gives us the impression it's 5 million light years away. And then in front of it, we see a a quasar, a quasi-stellar object, smaller. And we know it's in front because it has dimmed the light. It's, it's blocked the light coming from the galaxy behind. Now, keep in mind the galaxy behind is given us a redshift of, say, 5 million light years, but this quasar gives us a redshift of, 200 million light years. Right. How can an object which physically looks like it's in front of the galaxy behind you know be, be so 195 different. million light years further away? And yeah. so it's thrown the whole question of course of what is redshifts because the only thing we have coming to us from distant galaxies etc is light. But if redshift does not equal distance then all of cosmology, even our creation models, to be very frank, are, are up are up for grabs. And well, and, so and it's I remember not something we can go out and test, of course.
0: That's right. And I remember reading, uh, getting into uh, uh, Halton Arp's theory of red redshifts uh, a couple of years ago, as I was researching the book. It became a kind of an aside. But one thing that struck me about uh, about Arp's research was the antagonism that he received from his peers mm-hmm. in publishing these ideas. Uh, I remember one episode that he writes of uh, where he was excoriated uh, at a conference for yeah. even suggesting the idea that there might be something else to redshifts. Um, it was, if it was true, as you say, Gary, it would be a, it would be a paradigm
1: shift akin to uh, the, the uh, heliocentrism. I mean, well, be- yeah, that the earth's not flat anymore. Whoops, <laughs> hang on. Actually people still believe that. Sorry. Uh, yes. Um, so, uh it's been it's been a
0: delightful conversation gary i could go on for another two weeks talking to you about this this is fantastic and i so appreciate you taking your time this morning uh to discuss these things with us um i want you to give our listeners uh, some resources that will uh, there may be people out here that are never going to tell anyone that they're struggling with the very things that we're talking about uh, mm. for fear of chastisement and ridicule where can people go uh, to begin looking into this more earnestly and more seriously, what would you recommend? How we would get started with people that are just a, that want answers to these questions
1: well sure i i uh, I receive emails and letters constantly almost on a weekly basis uh, from people who 've either had experiences or are just questioning you know some of the ideas and the premises that we have you know for example, they say well you can 't say that uh, Um, You know, aliens couldn't travel here from vast distances. In the future, you don't know what technologies they have. And these are very kind of basic questions. And so not just for the sake of promoting my book, but all of these are answered in the book, Alien Intrusion, Mm -hmm. UFOs and the Evolution Connection. Uh, It's in its eighth printing. It gets uh, updated uh, constantly. Now that's available in the web store at creation.com. Or people can just grab it on off Amazon, and they can read the reviews there. Mm. Um, if they wanted an introduction, the movie uh, which you mentioned is called Alien Intrusion: Unmasking and yes. Deception, and again, that can be bought from our website or Amazon, or even streamed from Ab- uh, Amazon, uh, or you can get a, a digital download from Creation.com. And it's an
0: excellent, excellent video, and I'm not a, I'm not a big movie or video watcher, but that that was really a good DVD.
1: Yes, yeah, so we have the first-hand stories of abductees there. And here's something we didn't mention. And this is probably the, the nice icing on the cake of the interview. We showed research there from secular researchers with MUFON who were looking at people who had been abducted. And they said they were just struck with the bizarreness and the strangeness of it all. And they said, let's step outside the box. Is there any significant group of the population who are not being abducted? And they found that there was a significant portion of the population that seemed to be exempt from these experiences. And initially they thought it was Christians, but then they said, well, they found there were two types of Christians and using their vernacular, they said, well, we found there were these talk, the talk Christians, and they were still having the experiences. But then they came across a group that they described as the walk, the walk Christians. And these were people they discovered that uh, generally espoused their beliefs that the Bible you know, was the word of God, they tried to live their life by its teachings, they generally seemed to be exempt. They rang their colleagues in MUFON and all around the world, and they found that they'd already discovered this, but they dismissed it, you know, basically, well, okay, so aliens don't like Christians, big deal. So they took themselves off to a Bible study in a church to find out what it was about the Christian faith, that aliens, you know, or about Christians that aliens seemingly didn't like. And at the same time, they started to do deeper research into these people that had experiences. And they found that there was one common pattern that people had been able to stop this alien abduction experience. These are people who were in their room in the middle of the night, or they're driving their car, being taken against their will, undergoing all sorts of traumatic experiments, had been able to halt it by calling on the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I come from a pretty conservative Christian background. You and I were discussing uh, that we've got more than we bargained for. We're not demons under the bed type of guys. That's right. But if the Bible is true, it does explain there is a spiritual realm. There's a spiritual dimension that people can have spiritual experiences. But generally, as Christians, we're exempt from that because we're covered with the blood of Christ. And so they found that people calling on the name of Jesus were halting these experiences, and they went more and more into it. And they found that there were dozens of cases. Mm. Well, cut a long story short, they've got over four hundred cases now, where people who are calling on the name of Jesus, saying prayers, um, you know, singing hymns or whatever, in the moment of the experience of being able to halt them, or they've just simply become christians and in the movie version people can actually and of course in the book but in the movie version you'll hear firsthand of people who've been uh who've been able to these and weren't christians at the time but were calling upon childhood beliefs that they'd long time abandoned in the moment of terror didn't know who else to call out on so you know we were talking about having empathy to to people and uh, this is one area uh, if people have experienced this or they know somebody uh, you can have hope or you can give somebody hope. And uh, and that's why we're recommending the resources that we are. And I, I right. thanks for the time, Daniel, to uh, to expound this. It's been been fun conversation talking to oh, a kindred absolutely. spirit. Absolutely.
0: And I think that uh, the most important thing that I would encourage, as you just did, uh, would encourage any of our listeners uh, who are experiencing this as Christians, as non-Christians, as marginal Christians, as struggling Christians, that uh, whatever level of maybe demonic oppression or warfare or struggle that you're experiencing, whether it's alien life or just, uh, just any kind of encounter with the supernatural that is disturbing evil or dark. uh, It is the name of Christ is the glory of God in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who sets the demons fleeing. I think it's Luther's hymn. Just one little world word shall fail him, right? Yes, That's it. The name of Jesus is the best defense uh of 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 these uh beings if you will the 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 name of jesus is what stops their attack the name of jesus the word of god um well he's their creator yes he is and and as as we can read from scripture the only way in which they have any dominion over us is through permission how many times in scripture where jesus comes you know jesus comes to peter satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Uh, Satan could have not done a thing to Job had God not allowed permission uh, of that. Of course, Paul, the Apostle Paul, had a messenger of Satan who was sent to buffet him, and Paul prayed three times for it to leave, but Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. But that's what it is. It is the sufficiency of God's grace in whatever we struggle. He doesn't take us around the problem. He takes us through it and he teaches yeah. us to rely on him and the power of his word and, and the power of his name. Amen. And that's what I think all of the science, all of the, all of the stuff that we've been talking about uh, ultimately should lead us to the glory of God in Christ. So thank you so much, Gary. You're for, welcome for your time. No problems at all. Yes, it pretty much does. And, uh, I will, uh, I will uh, have this podcast produced uh, i 'm looking at uh, late April early may um, i 've got several lined up already. Uh, we come out uh, Good heavens is going to come out every friday uh, starting starting this this month and so i 'll probably have this in two episodes, but I will send you the podcast fully produced and you are you are willing you are able to share them wherever and however you want to
1: well thank you and uh, and remember too we 've got a lot of very capable scientists on board um, you know, Jonathan Sarford, is one of the experts on the Big Bang. He's actually a, uh, uh, studied quantum mechanics for a living, so he's very, oh, very well of, of all of that. Uh, Dr. Rob Carter is our geneticist. Mm. He's doing research uh, with Dr. John Sanford, the inventor of the gene gun, into the creationist version of the Human Genome Project and awesome. tracing our, all of our uh, genetic roots uh, from a biblical point of view. He's finding the evidence again, supports the yeah. Bible's, Bible's account. So, it's, so uh, it's, exi- it's actually an exciting time to be a Christian and a creationist. That it, we it, it's really this stuff it 30 is thirty years ago.
0: <laughs> and it, it's funny too, as an, as being involved in formal apologetics since twenty fourteen, uh, myself, uh, I see that the thing that that that, that I say irritates, bothers, frustrates uh, skeptics and atheists more than anything is actually the word creation being used as an epithet. It's almost like creationism has become sort of taken on the same connotations as using the name of the lord in vain when you're swearing or something it's like i see so often the idea of oh you're a creationist yeah as if you know it's a mocking it's a mocking derog- derogatory term but i think what that points out gary is that, that that this kind of ministry creation ministry recognizing this world is created and is created by god is indeed making headway. And I think uh, I have an atheist friend that, that I know personally, who is who who finds the fine tuning argument of the universe to be the most difficult and challenging for his his own skepticism, one for which he has no refutation. And yeah. so I, I, I see the the need for creation ministries in any capacity, uh, absolutely essential for this day and age. And so thank you for what you do at creation.com, Gary, and, and running the show there. And the Lord's blessing on you through this difficult time. And, yes. um, Oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. Well, for we, all we of all, us.
1: We'll, we'll all come out the other end in some shape or form. We don't quite know what that looks like. So that's right. That's right. And I think again, it's a good opportune time for Christians to stand up and, uh, if they're interested, um, you know, we'll still be going on by the time you air this, we have a, a tract on our website called about the Coronavirus" Could to be handing that out to people. Uh, Super. There are no atheists in foxholes, as the old saying goes. And I think people are starting to to worry about what might happen to them if they get it.
0: Right. God has a way of getting our attention when we don't want to give it to him.
1: Mm. Well, God bless you, Daniel.
0: Yes. Okay. Thank you again, Gary, for your time. I do so totally appreciate it, sir. No worries at all. Thank you. All right. Take care. this two-part episode has been an encouragement and exhortation to you. And we do hope you'll check out Gary's book and DVD, Alien Intrusion and the Evolution Connection, for a much more in-depth look at the phenomena of aliens from a solidly biblical worldview. There may be far more people struggling with this phenomena than we might realize. It is, after all, the enemy of our souls who desires to isolate us, to make us afraid, and to devour us. Many people simply do not want to talk about what it is they struggle with. Gary's book, we hope, can be a starting point for those seeking a way to better understand and deal with the terrors that assail them. You can click on the link to Gary's work in the description for more information. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For great resources on apologetics, cults, worldviews, and other non-Christian religions, be sure to visit our website at watchman.org. That's watchman.org. And if you've been enjoying Good Heavens, we also encourage you to listen to our new podcast series, Apologetics Profile which can be found on iTunes, Podomatic, Google Play, Spotify, and patreon.com slash Watchman Fellowship. For Good Heavens, I'm Daniel Ray.